Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 31st day of August, 2008. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind my listeners, as always, to please visit the homepage, www.corbettreport.com, where you can find links to all of our videos, articles, and interviews, as well as a documentation list with links to all of the documents cited in today's episode. On the subscribe tab on our homepage, you'll also find ways to keep up to date on all our latest articles, interviews, videos, and podcast episodes. So please consider going to the homepage and subscribing through our RSS feeds. Also, if you find this podcast and the homepage itself useful, please consider donating to our chip-in account to help us buy a new MP3 recorder, which we can use to record higher-quality audio interviews, both on the phone and in person. Finally, I'd like to give a heartfelt thank you to all of the listeners who helped to make this week's YouTube documentary video a viral video, thus answering the call from episode 51 to make a video of importance a viral video. In just four days, the video has received over 19,000 views and has been posted to numerous blogs and websites. Subscribers to our video feed will have noticed that this week we uploaded two videos, not just one, and in recent weeks there have been other videos not posted to the homepage. So again, please consider signing up for our video feed to keep up to date on all of our videos. And now, without further ado, it's time for the real news. Our first story comes from thisislondon.co.uk, August 27, 2008. Military help for Georgia is a declaration of war, says Moscow, in extraordinary warning to the West. Moscow has issued an extraordinary warning to the West that military assistance to Georgia for use against South Ossetia or Abkhazia would be viewed as a declaration of war by Russia. The extreme rhetoric from the Kremlin's envoy to NATO came as President Dmitry Medvedev stressed he will make a military response to U.S. missile defense installations in Eastern Europe, 
sending new shudders across countries whose people were once blighted by the Iron Curtain. And Moscow also emphasized it was closely monitoring what it claims is a buildup of NATO firepower in the Black Sea. If NATO suddenly takes military actions against Abkhazia and South Ossetia, acting solely in support of Tbilisi, this will mean a declaration of war on Russia, he stated. Our second article comes from the New York Times via Infowars.com, August 29, 2008. Cities debate giving away public infrastructure to bankers. Cleaning up roadkill and maintaining runways may not sound like cutting-edge investments, but banks and funds with big money seem to think so. Reeling from more exotic investments that imploded during the credit crisis, Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts, the Carlyle Group, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Credit Suisse are among the investors who have amassed an estimated $250 billion war chest, much of it raised in the last two years, to finance a tidal wave of infrastructure projects in the United States and overseas. Their strategy is gaining steam in the United States as federal, state, and local governments, previously wary of private funds, struggle under mounting deficits that have curbed their ability to improve crumbling roads, bridges, and even airports with taxpayer money. Budget gaps are starting to increase the viability of public-private partnerships, said Norman Y. Mineta, a former Secretary of Transportation who was recently hired by Credit Suisse as a senior advisor to such deals. Our final story this week comes from antifascistcalling.blogspot.com, August 24, 2008. Defense Intelligence Agency Seeking Mind Control Weapons a new report from the National Academy of Sciences National Research Council argues that the Pentagon should harvest the fruits of neuroscientific research in order to enhance the war-fighting capabilities of U.S. soldiers while diminishing those of enemy personnel. The 151-page report issued by a 16-member Blue Ribbon Commission, Cognitive Neuroscience Research and National Security, was quietly announced in an August 13th National Academy of Sciences press release. Commissioned by the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Pentagon Spy Shop, the study asserts that the U.S. intelligence community must do a better job following cutting-edge research in neuroscience, or, as is more likely, steering it along paths useful to the Defense Department. According to the NRC, in this new report, the committee applied the methodology to the neuroscience field and identified several research areas that could be of interest to the intelligence community. Neurophysiological advances in detecting and measuring indicators of psychological states and intentions of individuals. The development of drugs or technologies that can alter human physical or cognitive abilities. Advances in real-time brain imaging and breakthroughs in high-performance computing and neuronal modeling that could allow researchers to develop systems which mimic functions of the human brain, particularly the ability to organize disparate forms of data. Unlocking the secrets of the brain is projected as the next growth industry for the military, academia, and corporate grifters hoping to land huge Pentagon contracts. As defense analyst Noah Shackman reported in Wired, the Army has given a team of University of California researchers a $4 million grant to study the foundations of synthetic telepathy. Unlike remote viewing research funded by the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency between 1972 and 1996, 
variously known as Grill Flame, Sunstreak, and finally Stargate, before the plug was pulled, the Army UC Irvine joint venture are exploring thought transmission via a brain-computed, mediated interface. Welcome to the brave new world of neural prosthetics and the militarists who are exploiting science and technology for new weapons applications. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 53 of the Corbett Report. What are we to do with our lives? If that seems like a pretentious and portentous title, I agree. But I assure you that I did not come up with it myself. No, this title actually derives from a book of the same name by our old enemy, H.G. Wells, that eugenicist, propagandist, and predictive programmer. For new listeners to The Corbett Report, I suggest you go back and listen to episode 34 of this podcast to get some more information about H.G. Wells. But I thought it would be instructive to begin today's episode by quoting from H.G. Wells' What Are We to Do With Our Lives? This book is also alternatively known as The Open Conspiracy, its original title under its first 1928 printing. The name was changed to What Are We to Do With Our Lives for the 1931 edition of the book, and the final 1933 edition reverted to the original title. But today I will read from the free online version of the e-text, What Are We to Do With Our Lives? And again, please check the documentation list for today's episode on the home page to read the book in its entirety. And no, that is not an endorsement of H.G. Wells's ideas, but as always, it's good to know the enemy's thinking on all matters. So let's see how H.G. Wells answers that question, what are we to do with our lives? Quote, It is true that man, like the animal world in general from which he has risen, is the creature of a struggle for sustenance. But unlike the animals, man can resort to methods of escape from that competitive pressure upon the means of subsistence, which has been the lot of every other animal species. He can restrain the increase in his numbers, and he seems capable of still quite undefined expansions of his productivity per head of population. He can escape, therefore, from the struggle for subsistence altogether with a surplus of energy such as no other kind of animal species has ever possessed. Intelligent control of population is a possibility which puts man outside competitive processes that have hitherto ruled the modification of species, and he can be released from these processes in no other way. There is a clear hope that, later, directed breeding will come within his scope, but that goes beyond his present range of practical achievement, and we need not discuss it further here. Suffice it for us here that the world community of our desires, the organized world community conducting and ensuring its own progress, requires a deliberate collective control of population as a primary condition. There is no strong instinctive desire for multitudinous offspring as such in the feminine makeup. The reproductive impulses operate indirectly. Nature ensures a pressure of population through passions and instincts that, given sufficient knowledge, intelligence, and freedom on the part of women, can be satisfactorily gratified and tranquilized, if need be, without the production of numerous children. Very slight adjustments in social and economic arrangements will, 
In a world of clear available knowledge and straightforward practice in these matters, supply sufficient inducement or discouragement to affect the general birth rate or the birth rate of specific types as the directive sense of the community may consider desirable. End quote. For a further detailed analysis of that work by H.G. Wells, I suggest an excellent article from oldthinkernews.com under the headline H.G. Wells, Subdue Yourselves to the Federation of the World or Else. And again, the link to that article can be garnered from the documentation list for today's episode at corbettreport.com. But suffice it to say that whatever our answer to the question, what are we to do with our lives, it could not be more opposite or opposed to that eugenicist swill propounded by H.G. Wells and his directed breeding to eliminate specific types that the human community decides are undesirable. Of course, this is the embodiment of everything that the Corbett Report podcast opposes. Listeners to the Corbett Report will identify in this eugenicist ideal the very system that we are fighting against. From this derives our opposition to all the myriad forms of enslavement being practiced upon the world at the moment, from the false flag terrorist paradigm that we are living under in the phony war on terror, to the phony anthropogenic global warming hoax, both of which act solely as a justification for the expansion of the state into the everyday lives of its citizens. This, as we have outlined in numerous previous episodes of the Corbett Report, and the biometric control grid that's being erected around us as we speak. Again, these are the themes that the Corbett Report returns to over and over again, and it's obvious what the Corbett Report podcast opposes. But the question inevitably becomes, what does the Corbett Report podcast propose? What solutions are there to these problems? Or, to use Wells's terminology, what are we to do with our lives? This is a question that has been posed to me by numerous listeners as of late, and while I find it encouraging and heartening to know that my listeners are engaged, active, and truly seeking answers and positive solutions to these problems, I'm afraid that ultimately the answer to what are we to do with our lives cannot come from an outside source. Only you can answer that question for yourself. This is not a trite response or something that I take lightly. So I want to take a moment to further articulate this idea. And to do so, I'd like to turn to a clip of a speech by G. Edward Griffin, the legendary fighter of the New World Order, who has been featured on previous episodes of the Corbett Report podcast and YouTube documentary series. We're going to listen to an excerpt from a very important speech he gave about Freedom Force International, an extremely important organization, and one which we will talk about in greater detail later on in today's podcast. But right now, I'd just like to listen to an excerpt from this speech, which is featured on a video at Google Video. And again, please look in the documentation list to find and watch this video in its entirety. Let's listen to an extract from that speech by G. Edward Griffin. Now, before looking at solutions, we need to ask why no one has found a solution before. We've been at this game for quite a while. I've been aware of these problems since the early 1960s. And some people have been watching it and fighting it for much longer than that. Some very smart people, some very wealthy people, well-educated people, well-connected people, organizations 
a lot of motion in that direction. And no one has solved this problem before. Why have we been losing our freedom in spite of that? I think the answer was given to us in the year 500 BC by a rather famous philosopher, Chinese philosopher and warrior by the name of Sun Tzu. He wrote this little booklet called The Art of War. And that, by the way, is used, I believe, in every war college in the world. They study the philosophies and the strategies of Sun Tzu. And one of the things that Sun Tzu said is this. He said, if a man knows himself and his opponent, he need not fear a hundred battles. If he knows himself but not his opponent, then for every victory he will suffer a defeat. And if he knows neither himself nor his opponent, then he will suffer defeat in every battle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have been suffering defeat in virtually every battle. And I think that suggests that we do not know ourselves and we certainly do not know our opponent. In this passage, drawing on the philosophy of Sun Tzu, I think G. Edward Griffin has articulated something very important about the quest for a solution to our current predicament. Namely, that any solution necessarily has to be twofold. One part of which is to know your enemy, the other part to know yourself. The idea of the info war and the Corbett Report podcast's raison d'etre is, of course, the first half of that equation, know your enemy. I hope in my own humble way that this podcast helps contribute to the overall knowledge of my listeners about the enemy, who the enemy is, and what the enemy is attempting to do. Of course, the other part of any solution to these problems must necessarily follow that dictum, know yourself. And obviously, I cannot help you to know yourself. But it is nonetheless vital that we do ask ourselves that question and take stock of where we are, what we propose, what we believe in, and what we plan to do about the issues we are facing. To that end, I too have been thinking quite deeply about myself, what it is that I'm fighting for, and what it is that I'm trying to achieve. It seems obvious that at least part of what we're trying to achieve is a political solution to the political problems which we're facing, although I'm sure that politics doesn't quite encapsulate the problem that we're facing. That's why I've been drawn to a certain ideology, which has been embodied by people that I've promoted on this show before, like Ron Paul or the Canadian Action Party. The best short-form introduction to this ideology that I have yet seen is a, from a YouTube video that's under 10 minutes long, a rather simple animation which makes a great deal of what we are fighting for and what we propose as a positive solution understandable. It's called The Philosophy of Liberty, but unfortunately does not have an audio track, so I can't play it for you, but I do recommend it to my listeners to go and check that out for themselves. Now, the philosophy in that video seems to equate with libertarianism. And libertarianism, of course, is a political ideology. But perhaps political ideology is not the best way to encapsulate that philosophy. Well, in order to better understand libertarianism for myself, I recently talked to Walter Bloch. 
Walter Block is a professor of economics at Loyola University in New Orleans, a free market economist and political thinker whose work can be found at walterblock.com. Some of his presentations can be found on the media page of the Mises Institute's website. And some of his writing can be read at the Lou Rockwell Archives. Again, links to all of those will be available in the documentation for today's episode. Walter Block is respected as one of the leading proponents of the libertarian ideology in the world today. And so I decided to ask him about libertarianism and how he defines it. I want to get into the ideas and ideals of libertarianism today, but first I think it would be useful to define our terms. So, what is libertarianism? It seems to me to contain the elements of an economic philosophy, of a political philosophy, perhaps even of a moral philosophy, but I'm not sure it can be comfortably categorized within any of those terms. Well, it's sort of complicated. It fits all three. Um, I would say... Libertarianism is based on liberty, as its name implies. The idea is that we should promote liberty. Liberty is uh, groovy. Liberty is great. Uh, liberty is uh, the best thing for the human being. And promotion of liberty is what libertarianism is all about. More specifically, there are two basic axioms, each of which is the opposite side of the same coin. The first basic axiom is the non-aggression axiom. Namely, there is only one proper way that I can deal with you, and that is voluntarily, not through aggression. If I want your shoes, for example, there's only one way to get it, and that is to get your agreement. I can offer you money. I can uh, promise to be your best friend forever. I can trade something for you. But unless and until you agree to give me those shoes, I can't get those shoes. Uh, so uh, the illegitimate ways, the ways that are incompatible with libertarianism, would be if I pulled a knife on you and said, give me your shoes or I'll you know, cut you. Uh, that's one part of libertarianism. The other part of libertarianism, or the opposite side of the coin, is property rights. You suppose I just grab your shoes. Have I violated your rights? Have I uh, initiated aggression? Well, it depends on who owns the shoes. If you stole those shoes from me yesterday and I'm just recovering them today, well, then my act of seizing your shoes is not aggression. It's defense. It's compatible with libertarianism. We have to have a theory of uh, property rights, and the returns do. It's based on the Lockean, Rothbardian, Hoppian notion of the homesteading, where we first get to own our own bodies, and then we get to own those parts of nature that we mix our labor with, and then we get to own those bits of reality that we get to through a voluntary process compatible with an aggression action, namely trade or gifts or something like that. So that's... Uh, libertarianism in a nutshell, and it certainly applies to economics. It says that the only economic interaction that's legitimate is compatible with an non-aggression action property rights. It's not really uh, compatible with morality. It's different than morality. It's sort of a political philosophy. It asks only one question under what conditions is force justified, and it gives only one answer, and there's a prior use of force against private property. It's not exactly the same as morality, because you can do things that are immoral and still be compatible with libertarianism. For example, use drugs or uh, weird sex practices or whatever. That is between consenting adults. So it's not exactly uh, morality. Uh, it's certainly political and economic. Uh, it says that uh, only politics that is compatible with libertarianism is legitimate. And Ron Paul, perhaps, is uh, the most famous libertarian politician, where in his view, minimalist uh, view, minimal government libertarianism, that government is best which governs least, and he's very serious about that. 
Absolutely, and I'd like to get into the Ron Paul revolution coming up shortly. But first, what is an- anarcho-capitalism, and how is that related to libertarianism? Well, there are two branches of libertarianism. The, mini- minim- the minarchist, or minimal government libertarian, says that uh, government has one legitimate function, and that is to protect persons and property against aggression. And to that end, it has three legitimate um, institutions, armies to keep foreign bad guys off of us, um, police to keep local bad guys off of us, and courts to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are. The anarcho-libertarians are equally libertarian, although most libertarians are not anarchists. I would say 90% are minarchists and 10% anarchists. And the anarcho-libertarians uh, would say, well, yes, even this function should be done by the private enterprise system because private enterprise is compatible with non-aggression, whereas government does two things that make it incompatible with libertarianism, namely, it taxes you against your will and it uh, insists upon a monopoly. It won't allow other government services or other defense services to uh, be autonomous within its uh, claimed uh, monopoly area. So there's a little tension between the two versions of libertarianism, but they agree on pretty much 99% of uh, government. It should be stopped, and uh, the, what's left of the 1% or 5% of government, uh, we can argue about after we reduce it by 95%. Well, certainly I find nothing in that definition disagreeable. Quite the contrary, it sounds like quite an appealing philosophy to me. To remove the power of the state to intervene in the lives of the citizens must go a great deal of the way towards establishing a system which renders it impossible for the ruling oligarchy who has always existed and presumably always will, as Aldous Huxley said, to manipulate and control the masses. So far, so good. And indeed, we talked about many things in our conversation, which you can hear on the homepage CorbettReport.com under the Interviews tab, with which I agree wholeheartedly. However, there was one moment in our conversation where our thinking diverged. I think that the problem that many people have with the libertarian ideology is its faith in the free market. Um, And there are many people out there who fear that the unfettered operation of the markets uh, will lead necessarily to the complete monopolization of the economy by a few powerful interests. And essentially, I guess the fear is that without government intervention, there will always be a standard oil and you'll always have a few Rockefellers in control of the economy. And what is your response to this fear? Well... Uh, first of all, when you say unfettered, it really is fettered. Uh, the fetters would be the non-aggression aspect. In other words, if uh, John D. Rockefeller or Bill Gates or any of those types, if the way they get their money is by seizing it, by grabbing it against the will of other people, well, then they go to jail because they're violating the non-aggression aspect. But uh, the way John Rockefeller and Bill Gates made their money was through voluntary trade. Uh, every time Bill Gates uh, sold... Uh, a computer, or every time John D. Rockefeller sold a barrel of oil, they sold it at a price that was mutually beneficial. Otherwise, the people who bought the things, whether computers or oil, wouldn't have bought it. So suppose John D. Rockefeller sells me a barrel of oil for 20 bucks. Well, I must value the, the oil more than 20 bucks, otherwise why would I do it? And he values my 20 bucks more than the oil, otherwise why would he do it? So uh, trade is mutually necessarily, in the Asante sense, of anticipation is mutually beneficial. So how can anyone harm anyone uh, if through voluntary trade? Yes, John D. Rockefeller got very rich, but he enriched everyone else. Yes, Bill Gates got rich, but he enriched everyone else. So 
Bill Gates can't take over anything. John D. Rockefeller can't take over anything. If nuclear power came in into, into power in a way that uh, we didn't need any oil, well, then John D. Rockefeller would uh, be gone. Or if somebody invented a substitute for the computer, well, Bill Gates, he's got no real power. Whereas if you contrast this with, with the way the government does it, with the way a, a pirate does it, well, he gets rich, but he reduces the wealth of everyone else because he steals everything from other people. So there are really only two ways of going about this. One is the laissez-faire capitalist way, which is mutually beneficial, and the other is the coercive governmental or criminal way, which uh, increases the wealth of some at the expense of them. Bill Gates and John D. Rockefeller didn't make any money at the expense of anyone else. They made money by helping other people. I see the point, but I think that also when you look at the history of something like Standard Oil, the way that the, uh, the Rockefellers were able to come to power through Standard Oil was by bottlenecking the access to markets or the access to resources and creating a, a cartel that was involved in price fixing. And I think that, in a, in a way, in a free market economy, you're always going to have that um, type of cartel system uh, when there's a, a limited access to a certain resource or a limited access to the market. Well, I uh, disagree with that way of characterizing it. I think that this gets the history of it all wrong, uh, pretty much backwards, uh, pretty much the opposite of the truth. The way John D. Rockefeller made his money was not by uh, bottlenecking anything. It was by discovering oil and refining oil. Uh, and yes, he made cooperative agreements with other people, but cooperative agreements are voluntary and compatible with the non-aggression action. You know, there's that expression, I'm firm, you're stubborn, he's a pig-headed fool. Well, similarly, I'm a, a cooperator, you're a cartelizer. Uh, uh, it, it's just silly. Uh, cartelization is just a, a merger of two companies uh, who agree. Uh, look, uh, husband and wife get together and they make a cartel and they agree not to trade with others in certain ways, namely sexual services if they're monogamous. Uh, I think there's just a, a very silly way of looking at it that uh, when businessmen uh, combine companies and merge uh, and they can better serve the public, uh, well, the public is better off. And, and if the merger uh, or the cartel didn't work, well, then they'd lose money and they'd go broke, which is something that doesn't happen with uh, government enterprise. Uh, when they screw up, like FEMA or the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, they're still in business. When a businessman doesn't serve the public, uh, he goes broke. Now, clearly, listeners to the Corbett Report will understand that I was coming at this from a much different perspective than Mr. Block, that I do not believe that the interests of big business are benign, or that in a libertarian society, the threat of cartelization and the overtaking of the economy by a few special interests for their own private advantage is a made-up threat. Quite the contrary, I think this is an incredibly important point, and one that must be dealt with in any system that is going to oppose the things that the Corbett Report podcast opposes. I regret that I was not able to better articulate my point during the interview with Mr. Block, but I suppose my point rests in this, that expansive, centralized governments are bad because they can be taken over and used for the gain of private individuals, like the Rockefellers or other wealthy industrialists, and it seems obvious that giant levers of centralized power, like the federal government, will always be corrupted eventually by those powerful private interests. But I think it's utopian to think that simply by removing the federal or state government or centralized control of a system, 
that those interests will not continue to work against the best interests of the largest number of people. I think it's utopian and idealistic to say that if a businessman doesn't do a good job, he will go bankrupt. And I think the Standard Oil case point, which I tried to bring up with Mr. Block, is a very good case to bring up, precisely because of the way that John D. Rockefeller constructed his monopoly. Of course, the argument, I suppose, from a libertarian perspective may be that he violated the axiom of non-aggression by using intimidation tactics. But I think there's something to the cartel idea, which perhaps Walter Block is dismissing out of hand. When a combination of powerful business interests are able to suppress technologies which would be able to compete with their business ideas, simply by having more money and being able to corral more resources or more access to the market for their own advantage, of course that corporation will continue to get richer and others will not be able to compete fairly. I feel there must be a libertarian answer to this problem, and I imagine it has something to do with the granting of rights to individuals, not to corporations, that protecting the liberties of individuals does not equate with protecting their ability to form organizations, such as corporations or non-governmental organizations, such as the large foundations, which we know have been an arm of eugenicist control of society, the Rockefeller Foundation being a good case in point. Now, perhaps I'm making too much out of this point of difference, especially since I agree with such a vast majority of what the libertarians have to say, as exemplified by Walter Block. But it's something that I will have to ponder and hope to write more about in future articles for the Corbett Report. But it's at this point that I begin to question whether it's useful to pigeonhole these ideas and ideals that the Corbett Report podcasts are striving towards in terms of one philosophy, such as libertarianism. Perhaps there comes a point when these types of categories and labels become more of a hindrance than a help. That's a point that was pointed out to me recently by Connie Fogel. Regular listeners to the Corbett Report might remember Connie Fogel from episode 4, in which she talked about the Canadian no-fly list, which was implemented last year in accordance with the SPP, Security and Prosperity Partnership, implementation plan. Connie Fogel, of course, was the leader of the Canadian Action Party until the end of this month when she stepped down as leader. There is now an interim leader while the Canadian Action Party is choosing its new leader. I recently had the chance to talk to Connie Fogel just before she stepped down as leader of the Canadian Action Party to reflect on her time as leader of the party and to talk about her political philosophy and ideology. Again, the interview can be heard in its entirety from the homepage CorbettReport.com under the Interviews tab, but I'll play here an excerpt in which I ask Connie Fogel about the libertarian philosophy and how she chooses to define her own ideology. Stepping back for a moment on a more philosophical note, I was wondering about the politics of the Canadian Action Party, and I know to some extent it's always difficult to, to apply labels to a movement, but uh, the libertarian philosophy has been gaining ground throughout the world, I think, as part of the anti-globalization uh, movement, as well as the growing awareness of monetary reform policies. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that movement of libertarian, not only uh, the libertarian movement in Canada, but also around the world, and whether you think the Canadian Action Party fits into that description or that label, and what that philosophy might mean to you. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> I can't and I won't. 
um, uh, I don't know enough about what the libertarian movement is. I mean, we know there's a whole Ron Paul movement. Is that considered a libertarian movement in the United States when he's when he's on a Republican ticket? Um, I don't. I don't. The reason I'm saying no is because it's been important for me in the time I've been around um, to I, to deal with issues. And I I came to this party because I was so unhappy with the other op- the other options that were available to me at an electoral level, and even at a non governmental level, I didn't I wasn't happy with what any of the other non governmental organizations who were in the globalization movement were doing. They were not clear enough in terms of, of what the final to do is. They took about all the the wrongs, but they, they they didn't have a clear political position. Their position is let the non governmental organizations run the world, and I say no, not at all. That's not accountable. Or it's not, they're not elected. Uh, we can't we can't get rid of them. So um, I uh, my we've taken a clear position on issues. I've been very clear on issues, and over all my years of political exposure, I this very question you're asking gets put to me, and I've been on the hot seat in before editorial panels of, of significant newspapers and and, uh, and and small newspapers and telephone calls and show hosts. Um, and I honestly can't answer the question because you know what? None of the traditional labels address the issues of the world today the way I see them need to be addressed. They all, there's, there's not much difference between any of them. And so I don't know where, I don't think that the labels help us anymore. Um, so I can only say what I've had to do and what I've encouraged any caller to do, anybody who's ever asked me any questions, is to find out what people are going to do. What is that party going to do on this issue? What are they actually really going to do? And I don't care what the party is called. And it doesn't have to be the Canadian Action Party. It can be any party that would do the things that I want to be done and that I as leader have have set the direction of CAP following the direction of Paul Hellyer that we want to be done. If any other party in this country, and we've actually gone through the process of that under Paul Hattie, where we tried to unite with some other parties and say, look, we're so close. Let's, can we, can we come together, the Green Party, the NDP, uh, some progressives from the Liberals, some progressives, we call them progressives, I, mean, I, I use the word progressive, maybe I'm putting a label there, people from the NDP or from the, uh, the, the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party who, who agree with the things we're saying, can we not all come together and can we not uh, forge a force and take on a different name and call ourselves a united party of some kind. And can we not all go forward on three issues? We want the end to globalization. We're, we're opposed to global. We understand the process of globalization and that it's an evil thing. And we want a recognition and an implementation of the power and the control of money in the hands of the people through their elected governments like our National Bank or in the Bank of Canada. We want it to be used for its power. And can we not institute an electoral reform system that truly is accountable to the people and allows the people to pull back the representatives when they betray them or don't follow through? We tried that. We tried that for two years or three years in TAP and got nowhere. We couldn't get anybody to do it. So we had to... When I became the leader, that's where we were at. And the party said, no, we're not going to fold, even though that effort didn't win, didn't, unless we, even though we failed on that, because there is no other voice prepared to do that. And so when you say to me, where do, where, where do I put us in the, in the political sphere, Paul Heller used to use the word, we're in the radical center. Uh, but it, to me, all of that is, is meaningless. For instance, I was just at a Freedom 21 conference speaking in Texas a, a few weeks ago. And that is uh, that was a conference uh, that was um, 
presenting speakers and having people present who represented in many ways what in the past would have been called the very conservative element of the United States. They're the patriots of the United States. They're the ones who are concerned with the sovereignty of the United States. They're the ones who want the United States to remain United States. Uh, they they were critical of the Republican Party, critical of the Democratic Party, critical of both the leaders that are currently running. And and here I am, and, and yet one of the groups that are there is the John Birch Society, who in Canada has historically been written off by so many people as being too far to quote the old right, and they would do a lot of things that we wouldn't agree with. Well, I agree, uh, and I was invited down because I have spoken out on things that they like, and that's to say, I want to remain Canadian. And they say they wanted people in the States to hear uh, somebody from another country say they wanted to remain in their own country. In other words, they wanted their people to understand that the people around North America are not scrambling like crazy, rushing to try to become a part of the United States, but that they see a significance in their own sovereignty and their own independence and their own freedom and their own right to uh, make their own decisions. And so ultimately for me, I'm, I'm answering your question by saying the test is, the test is, are you going to be left as a citizen with a meaningful capacity to be able to shape the decision of your world? And if your answer cannot be yes with that, pe that group or that person, then and you want that, then don't go there. I don't know if that helps. Well, as a matter of fact, I believe that does help. I believe what Ms. Fogel has effectively articulated there is the importance of not placing our faith in any one ideology or spend our time worrying about which political category we fall under, only to know what our core principles are and to follow those. Indeed, I think it has been a tactic of the New World Order to play on our desire, our penchant for always associating ourselves with one group or other. And as much as libertarians detest the opposite idea of collectivism, there is nonetheless some underlying aspect of group psychology any time people come together under one philosophy. It's a subtle mechanism to be sure, but it's the same one that keeps so many people in the false left-right paradigm, in which they can be convinced there are only ever two possible ways of looking at any issue, and most people instantly know which side of the debate they fall on simply by looking at what their party or their party's leaders decide is the party position. It seems then that it's more important to define our core principles in a broad sense rather than in simply a political or economic sense. What are the core foundations of our beliefs and why do we believe them? This is not a trivial point, in fact it's a very fundamental one and I think it's one of the central questions we have to ask ourselves individually in order to be able to answer that question, what are we to do with our lives? It's at this point that I'd like to turn back to G. Edward Griffin, who opened today's podcast. As I mentioned before, G. Edward Griffin is, of course, a legendary person in this movement and has been fighting the New World Order for the better part of five decades. He's the author of many books, presentations educational films and documentaries, attempting to bring to the masses the information about how the economy is controlled by private bankers and what their ultimate plans are for humanity. G. Edward Griffin has formed an organization which is not entirely political, but has political aspects, known as Freedom Force International. 
This is an organization I would highly encourage my listeners to research more into by going to their homepage, freedomforceinternational.org. Now I'd like to play a different excerpt from the same video that we were listening to earlier, which is about an hour and a half presentation describing Freedom Force International, its purpose, and its philosophy. I'd like to listen to an extract in which G. Edward Griffin clearly articulates the necessity of coming up with a list of core principles, in which he talks about the U.S. Constitution and also the creed of freedom, the core principles to which Freedom Force International subscribes. This is a fascinating presentation, and I again encourage you to watch it in its entirety online. But let's listen to this extract from G. Edward Griffin's presentation about Freedom Force International. So now we turn at last to Freedom Force. Freedom Force is not an academic program or a study club or a letter writing committee, but it is a network of ideological warriors, and I use that word very carefully, whose goal is nothing less than to come to power. And that is why the slogan, or the motto, I should say, the motto of Freedom Force in Latin is Impotentes Defendere Libertatum Non Pursunt. Now that's Latin for those without power cannot defend freedom. Let me repeat that, please. This is the whole point of my presentation here today. Those without power cannot defend freedom. Now, we all remember that Lord Acton warned us, did he not, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. A lot of people remember that phrase. It sort of rolled from the tongue. And it's true. There's nothing more corrupting than power. And yet here I am standing before you and saying, we must reach for power. Wow, how dangerous is that? The answer is, it's dangerous. Having guns is dangerous. People get killed with guns. The only thing more dangerous is not having them. Political power is dangerous. It can get out of hand. It can corrupt people. The only thing more dangerous is not having it. Yes, it's dangerous. And any course of action that blunders into this without recognizing that danger and without taking specific steps to make sure that those of us who are involved are not or cannot be corrupted by the power we seek making a big mistake. So our movement must incorporate ideas and concepts and mechanisms to make sure that those of us, not if, but when we succeed somewhere in the future and have recaptured control of the power centers of society, we must have mechanisms in place so that power cannot corrupt us ourselves because we are corruptible. How do we do that? Well, I think the United States Constitution was a good step in the right direction, but it wasn't perfect. We can see it wasn't perfect or we wouldn't have lost the principles that it embodied. There were flaws in it. I think the guys that put that Constitution together were brilliant. I don't think you've ever seen such a group of great minds and, and uh, intellectuals in history. But 
Just because that's true doesn't mean that the document they created was absolutely perfect in every sense. I can see that one flaw in the Constitution, in my opinion, was that it was an administrative document instead of a teaching document. It's possible to read the Constitution without understanding the ideological principles embodied in it. In order to understand why they put those provisions in there, you've got to go elsewhere. You've got to go to the Federalist Papers and to the private letters written by the Founding Fathers, the debates that took place while the Constitution was being hammered together. That is where you find the arguments in defense of individualism, in defense of liberty, but you don't find it in the Constitution itself. It's all mechanisms. And so, even if we required the school kids to read the Constitution, which we don't, unfortunately, but even if we did, they wouldn't know what they were reading for the most part. There's nothing that gets you in the heart or in the brain. But if the rationale for all of those provisions had been written into the Constitution perhaps as annotations over on the left side, that we're doing this because of this, I think it might have had a good chance at surviving. That's just one thing. But the most brilliant thing about the Constitution is that it is a negative document. It does not grant powers. At least the Bill of Rights doesn't. The Bill of Rights doesn't grant any powers. It limits the powers. It doesn't say that Congress shall do this, this, and this. It says Congress shall not do this, this, and this. It's those limitation of powers that makes this concept so viable. I think it was Jefferson that got a letter from a friend of his shortly after the Constitution was put together. And the letter said, it was Jefferson. He said, Mr. Jefferson, now that we have our new Constitution, how can we be sure that only good men are elected to office? And Jefferson's response was quite brilliant. It was irate almost. He said, speak to me not of good men. Rather, let us bind men down with the chains of the Constitution. He was saying, in essence, of course we're going to have scoundrels running for office, and of course they're going to be elected. Any system that depends only on good men and angels being elected to office is a dumb system. It's not going to work. Our founding fathers knew that. And so they designed a system which was supposed to prevent the chains of the Constitution were supposed to chain them down and prevent them from abusing the power that they were given. And it, as I said before, it did a pretty good job, but it didn't do a good enough job. Over the passage of time, those chains were broken one by one by a combination of Supreme Court rulings, by people who didn't like those chains, and reinforced by ignorance and apathy of the American public who didn't understand that there were change there in the first place. So we have a model at least. We have to establish certain principles when we set our own program in motion. And they will be negative principles. We must have a creed of freedom, a set of rules, a set of chains that will bind not only our politicians in the future, but those of us who are in freedom force as well. And that led me ultimately to the necessity to create something called the Creed of Freedom. Now the Creed of Freedom is the ideological compass that guides all of our members. 
It's not like a political platform. It's not a series of issues like we should uh, uh, be opposed to illegal immigration or we should, uh, we should be for social security or what, a bunch of issues. No. These are principles. These are principles that are eternal. And if we understand those principles, then we can use them as a template to evaluate all of the issues that come either today, tomorrow, or a hundred years from now. They either pass the principles or they're defeated by the principles. So the idea is to focus on principles, not issues and certainly not on personalities. Now I can't claim real credit for this. Everything I'm going to read to you, you'll recognize many of these thoughts come from the great thinkers of the past. My role primarily has been to read the literature to try and figure out what it means, to get it organized, to condense it down, to get it all in one piece of paper. It was really pretty easy. It only took me 42 years to do it. Well, I didn't work on it constantly, you know, but it took a long time. So here it is, the creed of freedom. I believe that only individuals have rights, not the collective group. That these rights are intrinsic to each individual, not granted by the state. For if the state has the power to grant them, it also has the power to deny them, and that is incompatible with personal liberty. I believe that a just government derives its power solely from the governed. Therefore, the state must never presume to do anything beyond what individual citizens also have the right to do. Otherwise, the state is a power unto itself and becomes the master instead of the servant of society. I believe that one of the greatest threats to freedom is to allow any group, no matter its numeric superiority, to deny the rights of the minority, and that one of the primary functions of just government is to protect each individual from the greed and passion of the majority. I believe that desirable social and economic objectives are better achieved by voluntary action than by coercion of law. I believe that social tranquility and brotherhood are better achieved by tolerance, persuasion, and the power of good example than by coercion of law. I believe that those in need are better served by charity, which is the giving of one's own money, than by welfare, which is the giving of other people's money through coercion of law. I believe that all citizens should be equal under law, regardless of their national origin, race, religion, gender, education, economic status, lifestyle, or political opinion. <clears throat> Likewise, no class should be given preferential treatment regardless of the merit or popularity of its cause. To favor one class over another is not equality under law. I believe that the proper role of government is negative, not positive, defensive, not aggressive, it is to protect, not to provide. For if the state is granted the power to provide for some, it must also be able to take from others. And once that power is granted, there are those who will seek it for their advantage. It always leads to legalized plunder and loss of freedom. If government is powerful enough to give us everything we want, it is also powerful enough to take from us everything we have. Therefore, the proper function of government is to protect the lives, liberty, and property of its citizens, 
nothing more. That government is best which governs least. And that is the creed of freedom, a freedom for us. Now, I'm certainly not asking my listeners to believe that creed of freedom, to subscribe to it, or to join Freedom Force International. That, ultimately, is a decision you will have to make for yourself. Again, it must be stressed that the solution to the problems that we're dealing with can only come from you. And you are the only one who can answer the call to know yourself. There are, of course, many options, and Freedom Force International is one of those options. Other options might include for those in the Canadian electorate to join the Canadian Action Party, to become part of the process of selecting a new leader for that party and helping to shape it towards your own political ideas and ideals. Of course, this is particularly important at this time, as there is likely to be a Canadian election called in the coming weeks. For Americans, as I'm sure many of my listeners already know, the Ron Paul presidential campaign has transformed into the Campaign for Liberty, an ongoing political process of engagement, which will use the momentum gained from the Ron Paul revolution to effect change on a governmental level. This is a young and exciting organization, and I suggest people check it out by following the link from my links page, where it is proudly displayed at the bottom of the page. And of course, at their website, you'll be able to learn about their Rally for the Republic, which is coming up this week, and promises to be an exciting alternative to the Republican National Convention. And perhaps, hopefully, will garner even more media attention than the convention itself. Again, only you can help yourself to know yourself. But hopefully, the Corbett Report podcast can help you to know your enemy. And together, we will forge a solution. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. And join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. I said, well, it just might be that freedom is popular.